Thanks for that, Mike. Quite a few years back, I returned from our summer holiday when we were living in those days in Harlow. I was working in the labs of, I think it was, the company was at that time, SmithKline Beecham. I'd arrived one extra day back after the August bank holiday. It's so nice to take that extra day so you don't have to rush back and then rush into work the next day. Most people were in work on the Tuesday. I arrived on the Wednesday to find the place in a state of shock. There had been a rationalisation. Redundancies of one in ten had been announced totally out of the blue. On the Tuesday morning, everybody on site had been told to go to one of two meetings. In one meeting, those who survived the cull were told what was happening. And then told, I guess, okay, get to work. In the other meeting, a smaller one, with those unfortunate 10%, they were told that their employment with the company was over. They would be paid in lieu of notice and probably quite generously. But they were escorted by security staff to their desks, which they had to immediately clear, and were then escorted off-site. Thank you, goodbye. You are the weakest link. The manager in Jesus's parable was not quite so summarily dismissed. There were some things he still had a little time to use in order to put things in order. And Jesus says some really quite surprising things about how he used that time, doesn't he? It wasn't quite feathering his nest. That's more the kind of thing that he might have been doing throughout his career. Question mark over that, we will come to in a moment. But it's not an official golden parachute either, is it? Certainly not something planned by his master. But what he did to ensure as soft a landing as possible, well, it was in ways that were, they just sound so dodgy, don't they, in all honesty? To our ears and surely to those of Jesus's hearers' ears as well. And Jesus draws a profound lesson for his disciples from this imaginary scenario. We must learn to invest our money and ourselves with God's eternal perspective. Our spirituality, says Jesus, should be savvy, not naive, when it comes to the stuff of everyday living. And unbelievers, he says, doesn't he? Unbelievers, in some ways, are an example for us to follow, only in some ways. They tell us, at least in this case, how we can be more spiritual. How weird is that? A few questions that we need to ask and answer as we go through this passage this morning. What's happening in the story? Specifically, what is Jesus approving of? And therefore, what is Jesus warning his disciples about? And of course, what difference should it make to us? Let's start on with, right away, the story. What's happening here in this story? Does it confuse you? Does it trouble you, perhaps? There might even be a link with the previous parable. Now, if I said, this is Luke chapter 16, what's the previous parable? You probably say, whichever parable it is in Luke chapter 15. Actually, is it one or is it three? I argue it's one parable in the whole of Luke 15, a triple-decker parable about the lost sheep, 
the lost coin, and the two lost sons. Do you remember what the younger son did with his inheritance? Luke 15, 13, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That's the same word that, you, that Luke uses here about the manager's mismanagement. There was a rich man, says Jesus, whose manager was accused of wasting or squandering his possessions. So it could be that Luke sees this as a, as a particular sort of spin-off, really, based on that particular thought. Certainly, that is a key thought of this parable, how not to waste, but how not to waste what? Money? Is it just about money? I don't really think so. Is it a question of how not to waste our whole lives? We'll come to precisely what a bit later, but let's follow on through the parable itself to start with. Here we've got the setup. There are two main characters. There's the rich man and a manager or steward. The word means literally ruler of the house. See, the rich man didn't want to spend his time organizing the practicalities of everyday living. That was all entrusted to his manager, who would have had an awful lot of authority to do as he saw fit with his master's possessions. It was a position of responsibility. The only trouble was that he had, or at least he had been accused of abusing that responsibility. And news of it reaches the master's ears. The question is, first of all, is he guilty? Because the word just say accused, says accused, you know, innocent until proved guilty. So he called him in and asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, I think from the way the parable proceeds, he probably is guilty. He doesn't protest his innocence at all. It could be that he's thinks this master is one that once he's made up his mind, he's not going to change it, so there's no point in fussing. And I think also the master's eventual grudging approval doesn't actually fit with him being well, that, that mean, I suppose. So I think I conclude that the manager knows he's been caught good and proper, bang to rights, it's a fair cop, Gov. It's not actually hands in the till, but he knows he is guilty of culpable negligence. But he's not escorted off the site then and there. He's told to bring the books up to date and then hand them in. That means he has some short period of time to maybe think up some kind of scheme. Doesn't Jesus tell these stories so well? can almost hear the cogs start to whir around, can't you? The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. What can I do? That's impossible. That wouldn't work. That's very unattractive. Then he hits upon the scheme. You can almost hear the light come on as Jesus tells the story. I know what I'll do. 
when I lose my job, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes, their houses. But Jesus doesn't tell us right away what he does. He lets us see as he tells the story, as he spins the story. We're going to have to see this scheme in action. And here's where it, in all honesty, seems to get really rather dodgy as he gets these various debtors in one after another and makes them an offer they can't refuse. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. You might have noticed there was a disparity between the words Mike read out and the ones that came up on screen. They referred to the same amounts, the same quantities, but it was quite useful when you saw something like, was it 30 tons or something? These are big amounts. So we're talking commercial venture here. 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Well, that's a tidy profit for the guy, isn't it? Yeah, we're talking big sums here, so he's, well, yes, how can you say no to that? But the manager is acting within his authority. Well, so I suppose he wouldn't have been just thrown out of work. He would have been thrown into jail straight away. But did you notice that word quickly? Now, does that mean that he knows there's something a bit shifty? Actually, I think it probably means that there's a long line of people to get through. And therefore, let's get a move on. So then he asked the second. And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told, take your bill and make it 800. I think there have to be more than two creditors with the, with the word specific word that Luke uses here. I think it means that there is a long line and he's going to do the same kind of thing with each of his master's debtors. I mean, there's no point spinning the story any further. We get the picture now. Question, although, to be honest, isn't it all a bit iffy? This and other questions for your digging deeper, if you have those sheets through by email, you might want to discuss them over dinner today or if you've got a home group this week. But I've got a couple of suggestions you might like to consider when thinking how, just how iffy is this that might help to explain what's happening. First of all, it could just be that he is straightforwardly fiddling the books. Nowadays, they just rebrand it as creative accounting, but we all know what it means. But there is a possibility of what you might call nowadays manager's discount. And you get that in shops nowadays, don't you? You don't always get it unless you ask for it, but managers in bigger shops typically have their own budget for discounts in order to persuade a customer to sign up. In the situation we're looking at, it could be simply that the manager decided what markup to put on an original agreement. He would have the authority to charge less than that if he wished. It might be unusual, but it wouldn't be illegal or dodgy. Perhaps the debtors just thought that the manager had, I don't know, reviewed things with the master and decided it would be good business practice to charge a little bit less of an extortionate price. So it could be all legit. Well, there's another possibility, which I think is quite interesting, is a wonderful use of legal technicalities. It could be that we're talking here about interest payments on loans. Jews 
officially were not allowed to, to charge interest on loans. But they probably did have a system worked out by which they could do it. It's just, you know, if everybody does it, the local police force can't really do much about it. If everybody whizzes past on the bypass there at 85, the police do nothing about it, then they're not suddenly going to pick on one, are they? It's, it's sort of the blind eyes turn to that legal, it becomes a technicality. And it could be that this thing about interest charged on loans, well, it might just be the manager is saying here that all very properly, well, it's not legal to charge interest, so we can't really say 1500, we have to say 800, because that was the original sum. Technically, he could be doing exactly the right thing, and surely he couldn't be charged with dishonesty for keeping the law, the letter of the law, could he? Well, the bottom line is, though, that once this offer of a reduced bill has been agreed upon and paid, the master realised he had no practical option of insisting on the originally agreed account. He would either show himself up as a total idiot for hiring a nincompoop of a manager, or he'd come over as incredibly money-grubbing. Basically, the master knows he's been stitched up, but stitched up amazingly well by someone with incredible skill. Reminds me of a time many years ago playing croquet. Have you ever played croquet? You think of it as a lovely genteel game. It's not. It's mean. But you do it underneath this veneer, uh, veneer of gentleness and politeness. A, a, a friend and I at college were in a, a pairs competition. And we found ourselves matched against someone who had won that competition the previous year, but with a total newbie kind of guy as partner. We thought we were doing really well. Scores. I won't tell you details, but basically, first one to 26 points wins. And we were something like 13 or 14 points to five up. We thought, we are going to win this. And then this one guy who was a superb croquet player let rip. He made one mistake. He took two goes to score the remaining 21 points. We were, oh goodness. And we, yeah, the balls go whizzing around. You think, we have been absolutely hammered, but we've been hammered by someone with skill here. And I think this manager is showing great skill in providing himself with a soft landing. And the rich man that he was supposed to be working for has to admit, you have really done this with skill. Does the parable make a bit more sense now? But now for the really tricky question, specifically, what is Jesus approving of? The parable has been seen as a really tricky one because it looks as if Jesus is applauding the dealing, which is, if it's not actually dishonest, it's at least questionable. The parable used to be called the parable of the unjust or dishonest steward. So is Jesus okay with dishonesty? I think we know what the answer to that should be, it sure doesn't look like it at first glance, if we're honest, does it? So let's check what Luke actually wrote. The master commended 
the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. There's the words. It isn't quite dishonesty, it's shrewdness could be translated with prudence or intelligently or wisely or discreetly or sagaciously. It's based on the Greek word for mind. It means, well, we might say nowadays, he used his head here. He was in an undoubted pickle, but he worked out a very effective escape route. There was undoubted skill of a kind here. And just like what I mentioned about that croquet match, there's all kinds, I don't know what kind of sports you might be into. Recently, there's been this in Wimbledon. There's, isn't it nice that the Aussies actually have to claim they only survived, they kept the ashes because of a bit of English rain? There's women's football, there's, women's, there's women in the netball final. Goodness, I didn't even know there was, that was on the same time. There's World Cycling Championships. If you wait for a year's time, there's the Olympics and all sorts of things on your screen. Sports that I don't usually typically follow, but at times I sometimes do watch, and I'm just amazed by the kind of skill that people have what they can do with their bodies or their various tools or things they're riding or whatever, you know, golf, football, even synchronized swimming at the foot, at the, the, um, the bicycle championships. It looks like they've got synchronized bicycling looking like swimming. And I think that this is all Jesus is actually saying here. All other things aside, the manager in this parable was clever. You just can't deny that he was savvy, just as you have to recognize there was quite exceptional skill in the way that Adolf Hitler could manipulate a crowd by his words alone, even if we are appalled by the use he made of that skill. So maybe it's worth stopping and thinking for a moment. And again, these questions are on your digging deeper sheets if you want them. What skills and abilities can unbelievers also have? Signs of the image of God, perhaps? And what can we not just acknowledge, but sometimes can we learn from? But back to the main bit of the parable itself. What is Jesus warning his disciples about? Remember Jesus told this to his disciple. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. At the conclusion of the parable, Jesus makes a comment rather than an application. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Let's take it as read there that the people of the light are meant to be Jesus' followers. So isn't Jesus really saying that sometimes we can be a bit soft in the head? We need to be a bit more hard-nosed. Of course, we mustn't go too far the other way and become actually cold-hearted. Luke warns us, about that possibility at the end of this section with the Pharisees subsequent reactions the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus Jesus says that people like that have not rebalanced their thinking about money and such they've gone totally overboard in the opposite direction he said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others but God knows your heart what people highly value is detestable in God's sight. And that, Jesus says, is deadly. You end up applauding what God finds revolting. Bad move. And also bad 
because with possessions, you don't end up owning possessions, it's the other way around. Your possessions own you. But Jesus' answer is not here that we have to necessarily sell everything we own and give it away. Instead, he says there are times when we, when we need to be canny, not easily fooled, savvy spirituality. What's the balance between being warm and generous and cool and calculating? Other times when being shrewd like this is particularly important. Can you suggest some examples? And if you have to make a mistake, on which side is it better to err? But now we come to a more specific instruction from Jesus, rather than just a comment. It's a command here, and it's made more emphatic by the, st the starting off with, I tell you. I tell you, says Jesus, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There's probably a little bit of irony here when Jesus talks about worldly, the ESV says unrighteous wealth. He's actually saying that money, and perhaps other stuff too, is not dirty. It's not actually beneath us. Maybe it's because we're British rather than that we're spiritual if we refuse to haggle when going shopping nowadays. But I don't think Jesus is simply and only saying that we need to be canny about how we use our money in everyday life. Because you see here, this general comment about shrewdness can apply in that context, but he says here something about eternal dwellings. And I want us to think along these lines, particularly now. Eternal dwellings. What on earth is that? Or actually, should I say, what not on earth is that? Remember, he's referring back to the parable he's just told. The fired manager had been looking for someone to take him in when his employment had finished. He was looking for worldly dwellings. But Jesus is drawing an analogy here into the spiritual side of things. So Jesus is saying that we need to do something now in order that there might be some kind of eternal benefit. So it's not just about being canny stewards of God's money for our benefit on earth so that we could refurb the chapel or stuff like that. It's so that there will be some effect really long term for the kingdom of heaven. We must learn to invest our money in ourselves with God's eternal perspective. So I think Jesus is warning us that we could squander or waste or misuse things that he's entrusted to us. The time we have, the resources we have, the money we have, all of these are best invested with eternity and what God tells us about eternity in mind. He's saying that this canny manager making provision for himself of his in his last few hours of employment, has something to teach us. Question of application, I think. How serious are we about what we believe and what it should imply? If we had the deadly earnestness of this manager, forced to think of whatever scheme we can to make provision for the future, maybe we would make better provision for our spiritual future too. 
or the spiritual future of those around us. When the kingdoms of this world come crashing down, only what is invested in the kingdom of heaven is going to survive. Can you see what Jesus tells us about heaven? Think of the word picture. Well, they're scarcely pictures. They are just words. They conjure up something. Not quite pictures. But it touches us at a, on a sort of like an emotional level. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So look, this world is about stuff which at some time in the future will be gone. It will have vanished. It will have ceased to be, if you can remember a particular sketch. But heaven is about something that is eternal and will last. Jesus says this world is about something that is very little in comparison with something which is much. Jesus says this world deals with worldly wealth. Well, isn't that obvious? But he says also there are true riches. And he says, no matter what you've got, you haven't, because it's really someone else's. We're stewards, it's on loan, and in a hundred years' time, it will not be in our bank balance. But there is the possibility of something that's quite what this means, I'm still puzzling about, but instead of something that is somebody else's, for a child of God, there is something which is your own. It's a home, not a tenancy. A few more questions. If those things about heaven are true, how should that focus our minds? Are there some things we should make sure we did a whole lot better? And if so, why don't we? Would Jesus' teaching apply only to our use of money or other things as well? But when it comes to Jesus' bottom line, Note what he states as an impossibility. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What we've got in the parable Jesus told is a fictitious example of a man who made money work for him. He knew that money itself has no intrinsic value. Look, if he left with a bag of gold, or let, you know, we don't do this much nowadays, do we? It's, this is called cash. Remember cash? If I were just presented with this, I can't eat it. It will not make my car run. It will not keep me cold at night or shield me from the sun, which always shines in Cornwall. It is only of value insofar as it can be put to practical use and exchanged for something of real use. Buying things, or as in this case, 
in the parable buying favours very effectively. Earlier in the story, this man squandered money. He wasn't in control. By the end of the parable, he was the master of his money, or actually, to be specific, someone else's. The important thing is that he was focused and he made that money work for him. So don't think that we can just be neutral with regard to money or the other things that God has made us stewards of. Either we will rule them or they will rule us. We will be the master of our possessions or our possessions will possess us. If our possessions possess us, what does that say about our relationship with Jesus according to these words still up on the screen? So how's our use of possessions? What does it say about us? And how can we tell if our possessions are starting to possess us? But look finally again at the hints Jesus has waved in front of us as he concludes the telling of this parable. What do you think he means there by true riches? Whatever you think they are, don't you want them? Isn't that the same when it comes to property of your own? I'm not sure we can pin that down precisely what it means. More appealing to our feelings than our thinkings, perhaps. But if the very best the world can give us is just worldly wealth, and there is the possibility of there being true riches, actually quite like a retelling of that little parable that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field, hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That man just has to have that field. No matter what it costs, it is worth it, it, is worth it all. Wouldn't that be true of true riches? property of your own don't just think woodenly there about a seat or a plot of land or even a ready-built mansion in heaven with your name on it at the very best we are tenants in this world we know that one day this tenancy will come to an end sooner or later all that we have invested in here will come to nothing that's what jesus said here in the passage when it fails when it is gone, not if, when. But when it is gone, there is the possibility of eternal dwellings to take their place. Can I just finish with the words of a song that I find particularly moving? Really fits in with the what is gone idea. A very good Christian friend of mine was coming towards the end of his life on earth. One thing that provided him comfort at this time were the words of this song. I might have asked for it if I had got far enough ahead in my preparation this week. But I might actually have welled up a bit when it actually comes to singing this. Because it really gets to me. But here, I think, is a far better explanation of true riches and eternal dwellings that I can make. Because I'm not a poet. True riches eternal dwellings, absent from the body, but present and at home with the Lord.
There is a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meagre part yet drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me the hope of heaven. My highest calling and my deepest joy to make his will my home. There is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair. That when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Saviour there. Through present sufferings, future's fear, he whispers courage in my ear. For I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. There is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave, to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I behold his face. When suffering cease and sorrows die, and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. Folks, isn't this the kind of hope and the kind of home that you want and need to? That's precisely what Jesus Christ is inviting you to find in him today. Isn't that wise? Isn't that canny isn't that spiritually savvy spirituality to give our everything in order to know jesus christ folks let's pray Father, we pray that you will grant us in Jesus that hope that burns within our hearts and gives us strength for every passing day. And may we find our hope in a Saviour who will keep us safe in his everlasting arms and lead us home. Amen.